Well, good morning. We'll be in Matthew chapter 15 this morning. If you would turn there in your Bibles. I'll be reading verses 29 down to the end of the chapter, verse 39. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and he sat uh, sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with him the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet and he healed them. So that the crowds wondered when they saw that the mute were speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the, on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. I am unwilling <clears throat> to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish. And having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending uh, away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. So last week we looked at this interesting section of scripture where we see Jesus take somewhat of a hiatus from his ministry to the Jews And he retreats to a Gentile territory. Uh, Last week, it was in the area what was known as Tyre and Sidon. This was a a coastal area where two cities dwelt. Um, It was known uh, at one time as as the people of the the Phoenician people. And basically, they were Gentiles. Um, They were... uh, he, He basically had retreated from his ministry to Jews... And he retreated to Gentile territory. Now we see Jesus leaving that experience where he uh, healed a woman's daughter that was possessed by a demon. That woman was described in Matthew as a Canaanite woman. And we talked last week about the, um, the glory of Christ and the, the faith that this woman had in, in Jesus as the Messiah. And he travels from there back down toward the Sea of Galilee. So if you can imagine the, uh, the coast is, is, uh, is somewhere here and somewhere kind of uh, traveling back east, he travels to the Sea of Galilee and he makes his way down the Sea of Galilee to an area known as Decapolis. And again, this area is a Gentile area. We've talked about Decapolis when Jesus... Uh, exercised a, a man with a horde or a legion of demons, and he cast those demons into the swine. You guys remember that? And it was there in that miracle that we talked about the importance of understanding that being a Gentile region because Jews would not be farming pigs or swine because it was un, they were unclean animals. 
okay? Jews didn't have barbecue like we do here in Memphis, right? And so Jesus has traveled from one Gentile section down past through the sea of, around the Sea of Galilee on the eastern shore, and now he's back into uh, Decapolis, which is another Gentile area. Uh, Decapolis was basically, it, it is a region. It means 10 cities. And it was in those 10 cities that were ruled by the Romans and were predominantly Gentiles. Now, Matthew doesn't mention Decapolis, um, but, but Mark in the parallel account mentions that this is the direction and the area that Jesus is ministering. That's important contextually for our passage today. Because many people have gotten to this passage in the feeding of the 4,000, and they have said, why in the world is there another feeding of a large group of people in the Bible? I mean, we have literally, if you flip over one page in Matthew, or you may not even have to flip over a page. In chapter 14, you see Jesus feeding the 5,000. And now all of a sudden, Jesus is feeding another large group of people, the 4,000. Critics of the Bible have actually called this a, a, a doublet or a, a, uh, a way where the writer is just trying to um, exaggerate or recreate an event. And he's, and, and he's basically just taking the feeding of the 5,000 and creating an event, um, again, a doubling of the story. Now, we don't, we don't believe in that because we believe in the authority of Scripture and we believe that everything in, written in God's word was inspired by the Holy Spirit, written through holy men for our benefit and for our good. And so we know that every story in the Bible is there for a purpose and that every story in the Bible is historically accurate and true. And so you may come in contact with people and, and that may see this as, as a, a doubling of the story. So I, I wanted to begin this morning before we actually break down the text, is look at the similarities and the differences between these two feedings of large people. Okay? We could say that, um, that the similarities are pretty plain and simple. Both crowds, in the feeding of the 5,000 and of the 4,000, both of these crowds came to Jesus. Both of them, uh, Jesus healed the sick, he fed the hungry, and he did a good deal of teaching there as well. We know that both Jesus uses the word compassion, and, 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 and both acts are done out of compassion. Both scenarios have an account where the disciples show an, uh, a, 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 an outward display of unbelief doubting the, the miracle itself or doubting how, how in the world could we possibly accomplish this task, Jesus, that you've given. Both of these accounts have not only the provision but the administration of the feeding, meaning Jesus takes the food that's given to him. He says thanks. He thanks the Father. He breaks the bread and he gives it out to the disciples who then give it out to the people. And the last similarity, and I'm sure you could find more. These are just the, the, the highlights. The Bible makes clear that all are satisfied. So from those similarities, it, it does seem um, as if these are kind of carbon copies of each other. 
But we shouldn't stop there. We need to see the differences. We need to understand the differences because in the end, the differences of this passage win the day. Number one, the differences of location. Luke tells us that the feeding of the 5,000 was in Bethsaida, which is the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, at the very northern tip of the sea. It's a, it is a Jewish region. Mark tells us that the feeding of the 4,000, as I said, was near Decapolis, which was on the southeastern side of the Sea of Galilee, almost to the bottom, but not completely. So there are, number one, two different areas of location, but also two different cultures of people. The feeding of the 5,000 was the feeding of 5,000 predominantly Jewish people. This is the feeding of 4,000 predominantly Gentile people. There can be no more critical understanding of this passage than understanding that the majority, if not all these people that Jesus is ministering to, are Gentiles. The crowds, uh, the numerical size of this crowd is is clearly given. 5,000 men plus women and children versus 4,000 men plus women and children. Why would there be a distinction of 1,000 people in Matthew recording these things, why not just say 5,000 and 5,000? Because the numbers were different. There's a different amount of bread and fish that were used. The first account in the 5,000 is five loaves and two fish. This one is seven loaves and a few fish. Another interesting difference is the the difference of the leftovers. In the feeding of the 5,000, there is 12 baskets that's left over. 12 baskets. And what's interesting about that word basket there is, is it's a small basket that would be used to carry personal items. Uh, maybe in our, in our day and time, like a backpack a basket that maybe you would place a child in and carry that child, a small infant child, on a long journey. But in the account in Matthew chapter 15, in the feeding of the 4,000, there are seven baskets, but that word means hampers. A hamper in a giant basket that you have overflowing with clothes at home that you feel like you have to wash today when you get back from church. A basket so large that a grown man can be placed in that basket and lowered down a a wall to escape the angry mob of people in Jerusalem. Same word that was used in Acts chapter 9 as Paul is lowered down to escape the anger of the people in Jerusalem. So 12 small baskets or 7 large hampers of leftovers. Different location, different culture, different number of people, different uh, provisional uses, different amount of leftovers. But the biggest one is that the Lord Jesus recounts and remembers with his disciples in Matthew 16 both instances. If you have to flip over, flip over to Matthew 16. We'll deal with this passage next week. Verses 7, 
the disciples and, the, and Jesus have now traveled to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They've left their bread behind. They're hungry. And they begin discussing among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, says to them, O oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. There, even the Lord Jesus in his testimony is showing us two individual historical events. I mean, we believe in the Lord Jesus and his truthfulness in all things. So that very evidence, number six, should be all we need. But I want us to see this morning the importance of why we have another feeding. Obviously, Jesus is traveling around and, and he is ministering to people and, and it's there that he has compassion upon the masses. It's an impartial compassion. It's an impartial compassion on Gentiles with whom Jesus' uh, traditional uh, religious traditions say that he should stay away from these types of people. And yet Jesus travels to them and he ministers to them and he has compassion on them as Gentiles, the detestable uh, culture of people outside of the Jews. And so this compassion that Jesus shows us is not only an applicable truth for us as believers, but it's, an, it's a foreshadowing of the future kingdom of God where both Jews and Gentiles will have their satisfaction in Jesus Christ alone. So let's look at first the compassion of the Messiah. When we think about the compassion, we think that we must understand that compassion starts with the initiative of Jesus. Again, we could look at this passage in Matthew chapter 15 and we could see that Jesus is, 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 uh, has traveled to Gentile country and, and he's there going to this mountain um, outside of Decapolis in this region. We're not told what mountain it is, but there Jesus is once again on a mountain with his disciples and the people come to him. And we could make great uh, strides in, in talking about the importance of coming to Jesus. But let's not forget that the, the compassion of Jesus is, the, is greatly de demonstrated in the fact that Jesus first came to them. Jesus is the one that stepped out of Jewish lands and traveled to Gentile territory. It was such a religious faux pas in his uh, culture that when you were traveling through Gentile territories, you would literally shake the dust off of your feet because that dirt was so unclean because it belonged to the Gentiles. And yet Jesus goes to them. Yes, he is uh, leaving for the sake of, of, of trying to, to take a lot of pressure off of, of him. We know that Herod is seeking to kill Jesus 
We know that, that there is, uh, his, his life is at stake, and so he retreats. And where does he retreat? He purposely retreats to Gentile lands. There he encounters the Canaanite woman, and he heals her daughter. And we saw the demonstration of her faith last week. Now he travels to another area, once again, Gentile area, where people come to him. And so we think about the compassion of Jesus, and we say that it starts with him. We think about the fact that we are called to be compassionate in this world, and yet we don't understand compassion if we don't first see it in Jesus if we don't first realize the compassion that Jesus demonstrates, that we're given the minds to understand because Jesus has invaded and infiltrated our lives. In other words, we don't understand true compassion until we first engage with Jesus, and that is him coming to us, drawing us to himself, and us having a personal relationship with him. We could say in another way, we don't really practice true compassion unless our, true, our compassion flows from our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Every bit of our compassion outside of a relationship with Jesus is selfish-based, self-worship compassion. Everyone has a motive. Everyone has a reason to be kind to someone on the street. And if it's not flowing from Jesus, I promise you it's not the good that's within us. It's not that you're a good person and you want to go help the masses. We always have a way of finding our own glory and our own self-worship within those things. But when we come to a relationship with Jesus... When he invites us to follow him and we respond in faith, our whole mindset is changed so that we serve other people because Jesus Christ has sacrificed our, himself for us and served us. Our compassion starts with the, the initiative of Jesus. I love Luke chapter 10, I feel like this is such an amazing example. In Luke chapter 10, you guys know the story of the, the Good Samaritan. And what's interesting about this story is, is that the, the Pharisees are the ones that engaged Jesus, which led him to tell this story. And in this story, in, in Luke chapter 10, the Pharisees have come to him and they're seeking to know how they can inherit eternal life. Luke chapter 10, verse 25, Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says to him, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And the Pharisee quotes, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and, and, to, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. And he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And then Jesus tells the parable. And we know that the two religious leaders go by the man 
They, they turn to the other side, not wanting to contaminate themselves and, and make themselves unclean. And it's the Samaritan who goes to the Jew who crosses the cultural boundary and shows compassion. And it says in verse 33, But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him and what, whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the Pharisees say, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, then go and do likewise. Folks, it's not in us to do these things until Jesus saves us. Until he changes us. So that the foundation of true compassion is based upon the fact of the compassion of the Lord Jesus that has radically changed our lives. When we belong to the kingdom, we understand kingdom compassion. We want to do to others as Jesus has done to us. That parable doesn't just talk about a Samaritan that did great things. It talks about the sacrifice pointing back to Christ, the sacrifice that is made in compassion. And what greater example do we have, not of a, of a Samaritan, but of a Savior who gave his own very life. God in the flesh, sacrificing himself, taking wounds upon himself on our behalf, not just binding up other wounds. Not just sacrificing money and time, but giving his own very life for the care of other people. What an amazing Savior. And so it's by that, that testimony of the Lord Jesus that we have an understanding of true compassion. And so we as the church must go to the world in need and operate off of that compassion. We cannot wait for them to come to us. We take the initiative and go to them because Jesus took the initiative and came to us. We can't wait for us to come, for them to come to our community or, or to our door. We must go to them in the community and to the nations and help those who are lost and helpless and hurting. And we show them compassion by loving on them and loving them with the truth of the gospel. Because compassion doesn't just start with the initiative of Jesus. But we understand that compassion also combats the brokenness of the world. I love in this passage in, in Matthew chapter 15, where Matthew describes all the different types of healing that goes on. There we have, with the crowds coming to Jesus, they are literally bringing the, the, the lame and the blind and the crippled and the mute and many others, and they are literally hurling them at Jesus' feet. That's the literal reading. Now, we don't think that the crowds were throwing crippled people on the ground, 
But it, it's, a, it's a matter of emphasis to show us the great urgency that they had for these people. And in verse 31... In a, such, in a very beautiful, descriptive way, it doesn't just say he healed them. It says, so that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Jesus combats the brokenness of those people. Jesus gives us this example of compassion because it is in our compassion flowing from the Lord Jesus that we go out into the world and we meet the needs of those who are hurting. And we may meet their physical needs first so that we can point them to their spiritual brokenness and their need of a Savior. (coughs) Think about the Canaanite woman. There this woman came last week forsaking her gods, coming to the Lord Jesus, broken over the demon-possessed daughter that she has. And what does Jesus do? He triumphs over evil. He doesn't just help this woman. He shows us that he is the victor over evil in this world. By casting out a demon that has taken control of this young girl. So he is not just physically helping this girl. We are learning that Jesus is the victor over all evil and the the spiritual evil forces of this world. And as we talked about last week, we see not only him having victory or gaining victory over this demon by casting it out, but we also see victory in the Lord Jesus by a woman throwing away her false worship of false gods and believing in the one true God. Spiritual victory. And so now these Gentiles, once again, are forsaking their false gods and they are coming urgently to the Lord Jesus and they are throwing these people at the feet of Jesus knowing that he is the hope for their brokenness. The gospel teaches us that God's design, that that the relationship that we had with with God, with Adam and Eve walking in the garden in a perfect relationship with God, that that design was, was broken, corrupted by sin. And that sin divides humanity from God, their creator. And only through the Son of God, the Lord Jesus, sent from heaven, can that relationship and that design be restored. Jesus is the restorer of the broken. His physical healings point to the spiritual healing that he he gives to our brokenness. And so we, as a church... We can easily be swayed into to caring for the brokenness of this congregation. We can easily be swayed into only being concerned with our brokenness and our needs because there are many. We face suffering and pain in our church. We, we go through the battles of sick children and, 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 and ailing parents and lost family members and disease and tragedy. And all these things can be overwhelming. 
But let us not be confused to think that we are only called to show compassion to ourselves. Jesus is showing us here that compassion is for all people. That Jesus takes his compassion, his perfect compassion to the unclean places of the world. He shows no impartiality. He's not worried about people considering him unclean. Whether he's touching a leper or he's going to a Gentile and healing her daughter. And so we, as a church, as, as Christians, we take the compassion of Jesus with us to the broken world. But secondly, let's look at the inconsistency of the disciples. Once again, here we see the disciples getting themselves in trouble. Verse 33, and the disciples say to him, after Jesus has said, hey, I want to have compassion on these people, on this crowd that they've been with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. I'm unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples say, well, where are we going to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? There's an emphatic uh, uh, two words, the same words are used, uh, uh, emphasizing in verse 30, of emphasis in verse 33. Where are we to get enough bread in such a, a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? Same Greek word for enough and so great. It, it's basically kind of showing us that this is an impossible task, Jesus. Once again, like where are we going to find so great amount of bread to feed so great amount of people, Jesus. Now, some commentators want to give the disciples much more credit than they deserve. Some people want to look at this passage and they say, well, the disciples were confused because they believe that Jesus is asking them to perform the miracle. That's why in verse 33... They say, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? That's the argument. In other words, the disciples are just doubting themselves because they believe Jesus is giving them the responsibility of providing the miracle, the miraculous food for the masses. And to be fair, we do see in the scriptures where Jesus called the disciples in Matthew chapter 10 to go and perform miracles when he sent them out into the world. What does he tell them in Matthew chapter 10? Go heal the sick. Go raise the dead. Cleanse the lepers. Cast out the demons. So the argument for the disciples' sanity and great faith is that they are just confused as if Jesus is asking them to do it. Are you asking me? Where are we going to get enough bread, Jesus? I don't believe that that's 
the credit that they deserve. I believe that once again, the disciples are showing momentary and inconsistent unbelief in their life. We are continually seeing an inconsistency of faith in the disciples. And I think what I read earlier in in chapter 16 is just another example of that. So follow with me for a second. Matthew chapter 14. Jesus wants to feed the 5,000. They don't believe. Jesus goes into the water, walking on the water to them in the boat. They're in the boat afraid. Peter, for a moment, has a, 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 a moment of faith, but yet, remember how we talked about it? He, he doubted before he had faith. He said, Jesus, if it is you, then call me out and I'll come to you. But Jesus already said it was him. Another moment of unbelief. So a moment of unbelief in the feeding of the 5,000. Moments of unbelief, Jesus walking on the water. He even reaches out to, to Peter in verse 31 of chapter 14. Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And then here we have the feeding of the 4,000 again, where they're asking Jesus, where are we going to get so great an amount of bread and so, to feed so great a crowd? And then in verse 16, where they're arguing over their own bellies and their own food and they're arguing about bread. And Jesus says again, do you not remember the miracle that I performed? Oh, you of little faith. I think John Calvin says it best. The disciples manifest excessive stupidity in not remembering at least that earlier proof of the power and grace of Christ, which they might have applied to the case in hand. As if they had never seen anything of, sa- of the same sort, they forgot to apply to him for relief. Calvin continues, There is not a day on which a similar indifference does not steal upon us. And we ought to be more careful not to allow our minds to be drawn away from the contemplation of divine benefits. That the experience of the past may lead us to expect for the future the same assistance which God has already on one or more occasions bestowed upon us. Now let us be reminded that these disciples waver in their faith in a pre-resurrection time. They have yet to see Jesus die and come back from the dead. And right at this moment, they are still grappling with even the notion that that's going to happen. And that his resurrection is the foundation of our faith today. That we possess a resurrection from the dead spiritually because of the resurrection of the dead physically that Jesus Christ demonstrated. That that ultimate power that raised him from the dead also raised us from the dead when we believed and trusted in him and will one day raise us from the dead physically when he returns. And so it's that final act of the proof of his power of the resurrection from death to life, that we have a greater understanding and faith in Jesus. 
And yet, our faith still wavers. The battle still ensues. We still struggle. So let us not just remember the power of Jesus on display at feeding four four or 5,000 people plus or the healing of the sick, but let us have faith in the resurrection of our Lord and Savior from the dead. Because in that resurrection, not only does it display power, but it displays grace because he knows our faith will waver. Number three, the reaction of the Gentiles. Two verses that really point to the crux of this passage, and that is the reaction to the Gentiles. One is after Jesus is healing the masses in verses 31. It says, So the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. If this was a group of Jews, Matthew would never write, and they glorified the God of Israel. But because they're Gentiles, they glorified the God of Israel who did not belong to them, who, did they, who they did not worship. That is one of the main truths of this passage. A, a large mass of people have turned and are giving glory to the God of Israel. They have witnessed the miracles of the healings of the power demonstrated. What a beautiful picture for us to see a large group of Gentiles praising the Lord Jesus. I mean, that's a picture of heaven right? That's a picture of what the future is for us today and and what it will be for all eternity that that you have a feeding of the 5,000 and a feeding of the 4,000, feeding of the 5,000 Jews and a feeding of uh, 5,000 Jews and 4,000 Gentiles responding in, in worship and praise, finding satisfaction in the Lord Jesus. Alfred Edersheim is an author and writer. He, he makes an interesting point about the sections of Jesus' ministry that I thought was really interesting. He says that Jesus' ministry, sections of it always concluded with a meal. Jesus concludes his Galilean ministry in Matthew 14 with the feeding of the 5,000. And then he has a small little stint in Matthew 16 where he begins to uh, uh, feed or or to minister to the Gentiles. And once again, it concludes with a feeding of the 4,000. And then we enter into the final uh, time of Jesus' life, the Judean ministry, where he ends up going back to Jerusalem crucified on the cross, but before his crucifixion, as he ends that section of his ministry, he has one more meal, and that is with his disciples in the Lord's Supper. Now, Edersheim stops there. I would take this, this truth even further and remind us that even 
after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus has a meal with his disciples post-resurrection on the beach. And all these things culminate to the final meal or fellowship that we have with Jesus for all eternity. And so the picture here is the foreshadowing of the Gentiles reacting to Jesus, praising and worshiping a God that they did not worship before, that they did not honor before, they did not give reverence to. And it is foreshadowing and picturing all of eternity. Where people from every tribe and tongue and nation will gather before the throne. Revelation chapter 7 a multitude no one can number, not just 4,000, not just 5,000, a multitude that no one could number from every nation, nation, tribe, people, language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So let this be a challenge to us this holiday season to think about the sovereign purposes of the Lord Jesus Christ bringing both Jew and Gentile together as the people of God for the glory of Christ's name alone. And as the people of God flows out the compassion of God towards the people in great need. Ladies, I know that you have studied through the book of James in your Bible study. What a great example that James gives us in James chapter 2. What a great application to this truth from the Gospels where James says in, Matthew, in James chapter 2, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing comes also in, if you pay attention to one who wears the fine clothing and say, hey, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, oh, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme uh, the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself? You are doing well, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are uh, convicted by the law as transgressors. But whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. This is just one example of how the church shows compassion. James is addressing an issue with churches there in his day of showing partiality and a lack of compassion to people that are different than us. This is a serious problem in the churches today. We still have churches today who will turn people away because they're different than them. The church of the Lord Jesus, the one who 
died for the sins of many. Not for his sins, but for their sins. And yet we still fall prey to showing partiality and a lack of compassion. Or maybe it's a, a lack of being willing to, to let go of our own personal time so that we can serve the needs of other people. Or it makes us uncomfortable to be around people that are not necessarily like us. Church, the Lord Jesus has shown us the greatest uh, compassion that can be displayed and we are called to display compassion as well. That we go out this Christmas season and beyond and we show compassion to those who have need. So the question this morning How can your family, or how can you show compassion in Jesus' name? Sacrificing yourself, letting go of partiality, stepping over the line from maybe one culture to the next, and show compassion to people that are different than you. You know, there are groups of international students in our city They're here studying at the University of Memphis. And you know what's going to happen at Christmas? At Christmas time, they're going to gather together as a group of international students because they're not going to go home, most of them. They're not going to, they're not going to, uh, you know, they're not going to have a place to go eat. They're going to gather together and they're going to celebrate as as internationals in this little community of, 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 of people that don't really know a lot of Americans and so on and so forth. You know what the church can do? There are ministries in this city where the church, uh, they connect international students with churches, and you can have them in your homes for Christmas. You can have Russian students, Italian students, Japanese, Chinese students here, not leaving having a meal in your home, you expressing the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ as you sit and gather and read scripture and pray. And you know what many of them say? Many of them come and go as students learning in our country, and they say, we've never been in the home of an American while we were here. That's just one way. One way to show compassion in our city in our nations. Because we're promoting what this passage is promoting in Matthew 15, that satisfaction comes in the Lord Jesus for all types of people. That he is the true source of of spiritual satisfaction for all eternity, which shows no condition and no partiality. Because in the end, that reflects the glory of the Messiah whom we read about and whom we worship. That before the foundations of the world, the Lord Jesus designed this hiatus so that he would travel to a Gentile country and he would provide meals for these Gentiles 
so that you sitting in your chair in 2017 can be challenged by the universality of the gospel. That all types of people can be saved. We talked about this on Wednesday night in our community group. And I'll close with this. How beautiful is the word of God that we read the historicity of these accounts. We see that they are true in every way. That they are pinpoints in the timeline of history. And yet through it is woven the redemptive plan of God and God's sovereignty. He's carrying out these things historically. Jesus really went to this place. He really performed a miracle. He really died on the cross. And yet, that continues on to be recorded by the Holy Spirit so that we can have it written down. And throughout the centuries, these same words and these same stories that that are true in every way challenge our souls. They force us to think beyond our sinfulness to push beyond our partiality and our prejudice. So here God is working out his whole plan throughout history for his own glory and woven in there is is forcing us or, or transforming us to obedience and holiness throughout our lives, which also brings God glory. God's doing that all through his word. What power and, and, and it's just, it's, a, it's amazing. There's nothing like it. And it all points to the Lord Jesus, whom we worship and praise. So as we close today, let me invite you to believe in the Lord Jesus. As we close today, let me invite you to find your greatest satisfaction in him. The spiritual divide of sin causes us to be separated from God. And yet Jesus says, come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. So believe and trust in Christ, not in your own good works. Trust in the work that he accomplished on the cross for salvation. And the Bible says you will be saved, which means you will be satisfied. You will be satisfied in Jesus. Let's pray.